Hello and welcome to FERT Focus. As promised, this particular podcast is our Ask Michael Smith, Mr. Toe and Furt himself, any questions about your Toe and Furt, about your regime, about what can go through the machine. We've been looking forward to this for quite some time now. So taking your questions with Michael Smith, but we are equally privileged today to be in Australia and to have with us Neil Parker. Now Neil is our uh, national sales rep here in Australia, sales manager, and he's out around about, and we've been traveling around about this week, visiting some clients over here in Victoria. We've had a great week uh, meeting some really, really innovative farmers doing some terrific things on their farms here in Victoria. But today is all about your questions. It's about the questions that have been submitted to us. But to start, Mike, let's uh, just get your overall impressions first of um, the scene over here in Victoria and Melbourne. Um, and uh, give us your impression of what you've seen this week. Yep, so flew into Brisbane a couple of weeks ago and headed out to Toowoomba where we met up with um, a big company there that uh, got gypsum, um, got a few toe and furts and been having a few problems because it's yeah, gypsum's a bit of a different beast to what we're used to putting in the machines. It acts quite different and, and the characteristics when you put it in water are quite different to, say, lime flour, for instance. Um, yeah, so we had a bit of a morning going through different scenarios, what was happening, and yeah, basically made a few minor changes to the time fit machines to make to make the product mix and, and work, and help them with a few operational things to help them speed up their procedure, um, try and get more hectares done of the day. Um, these guys are using the gypsum in like potatoes and vegetables, is what we've seen on that day, um, to help break up the clay molecules, so the root structure can go deeper, um, benefits of uh, easier planting, easier harvesting and stuff like that. Um, then they also use it in the sort of tree industries, uh, pasture, yeah quite a big scope of things they're doing up there. And we're talking about massive, massive orchards, farms, whatever you want to call them, going from sort of the, the Toowoomba area all the way up north and out into the centre of Australia aren't we? Yeah, pretty much northern New South Wales all the way up to sort of Cairns. It's a big belt through there where they, they deal with these people. Um, but yeah, you're talking 500 tonne jobs as a as a job, and that's average probably. Um, yeah, so big scope for them and Tom Furt certainly the tool. They've got the product, but they just needed a tool to be able to apply it, and that's where the Tom Furt comes So when you say the product, and Neil, you'll be able to touch on this a little bit, the product is gypsum, um, but what are they doing differently with the gypsum? And there's some other products that they're applying as well. Can you touch on those for us? Well, mainly they were looking at the gypsum, as Michael said, for ground breakup, but also to, to push the salinity back down as there is a big issue with salt rising through the, through the ground. Um, so they're using the gypsum in high volumes to push the salt level back down through the irrigation paddocks. Moving on down here then to Victoria, I was lucky enough to join you to go and visit these Tarnfurt clients. So, Neil, touch on the uh, the, the Tarnfurt clients that we did see, um, just as a general broad sort of spectrum, why we went out and saw them and the sort of things that they're doing over here. So four dairy farmers we went out and visited who've had the machines for a long time. Young Cameron, um, dairy farmer in Labratouche in Victoria, originally bought a 1,000, uh, but then recently purchased a second-hand 4,000 out of... Uh, at Tasmania. Uh, surprisingly it came off a farm where he had nine dairies and the condition of the machine was I was actually very surprised how good it was. Uh, just shows how well these machines are built being over six years old and the amount of work it did uh, for a second hand machine it was very impressed. 
just basically everyone that we spoke to in relation to the Talon Fruit, they're very happy with the product and just looking at what other products that they can put through the machine, especially now due to the high prices of urea and all fruit uh, in Victoria here, we're now hit almost close to $2,000 a tonne, rumours being it could be over $2,200 a tonne very soon. So, you know, with the tail and fruit and the 50% reduction, farmers are saving a lot of money, but, you know, being able to put in other products uh, into their machine and just look at the diversity of what they can grow on their land. And I think that's a big thing for me uh, looking at it too is that every one of these people that we've seen and we've seen you know these four guys that we're uh, going to be telling their stories of but also the other ones that we've popped in to see for servicing and things like that is they haven't just started and stopped with urea they have started largely with urea but they very quickly realise they can do a lot more and they start to sort of I guess touch on other products and gradually over time their whole system changes to accommodate the different products and all of them it's really good to hear are talking about uh, increased soil quality um, a lot of them were talking about multi-species in some cases um, but generally every one of them to a T has gone from a urea base to to a multi-product uh, base now but um, an interesting week and an interesting um, set of visits which has been great it's always good to get out on farm and see customers but right now let's get into the reason for this podcast firstly um, and that is answering your questions So we've got Neil here as well and uh, Michael obviously, but we're going to throw these questions around to the two of them. Both of them have extensive knowledge in the machine. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Neil's been our rep over here for the last nine years, so he's certainly built the business up and uh, knows a thing or two about the Tarnford as well. But the first question we often get, Mike, is what we would consider a fairly simple one, and that is what size machine suits my farm? And I say simple, not to be rude, but really because at the end of the day the machines, we have five different um, uh, models getting it right is really important and it depends on a number of variables in terms of what machine will suit your farm best Mike can you touch on that for us what are the general rules for what size of machine would suit what size of farm yeah so it is probably the most common question we get um, and the, the way I usually approach it is a number of things what's your labor like do you have enough tractors? What's your infrastructure? What are you trying to achieve and what's your end goal? Because if you don't know what they are, um, it's sort of hard to help someone. Um, a lot of people go, oh, I just want to buy the cheapest one, which is fair enough. We all want to spend the least amount of money we can to get something we want. But what I've found with my experience and with helping people is normally if you buy a cheap one, it's going to cost you a fortune for labour or infrastructure to use it. So it's all about getting... Asking, getting from the farmer and asking the farmer how big his farm is and, and all those sort of things and what his end goal is because the end goal's just as important as a starting position because urea is a nice easy place to start because it's a big cost in a business so everyone goes oh I'm spending X amount on urea and if I can save 40% that's my cost yep that's a direct cost that you can work out but as you evolve down and we've probably got 90% of our dairy farmers out there start with urea and within the first eight or nine months, they're ready to move on. And well, I've had a couple of people in the last couple of years that that's all they could afford was to buy a small, say, a 1,000 litre machine. But really, from an economics point of view, they should have spent twice the money and brought a 2,800. 
And indeed, we just saw that with um, the example that you gave, Neil, with Cameron, who's just bought himself uh, a second-hand 4,000. Yeah, we would have loved him going for a new one, but the second-hand one was in good nick. He's got a great deal. He's gone from the 1,000, realising now, basically learning the machine, he can now scale up. Yep, Yep. so by looking at that whole thing and and looking where you want to head is probably just as probably more important, really, than where you're going to start. So I just work with farmers, but rule of thumb, if you're... Looking at doing your whole fertiliser plan and you're running around any size farm up to 100 hectares, you'd get away with a 1,000 or a 1,200. Um, the differences in the machine is not very much price-wise, it's not very much volume-wise, um, it's really just makeup of how you tow it and, and what it can do. Um, the 1,200 takes a bit more infrastructure, you either need to buy a crane for it to load it or you need a second tractor to load it. So that's usually the tipping point between people, but then we've got people that don't have the infrastructure but they've got a hilly farm and they don't want to tow something on the hill so they'll get a 1200 but then tractor size comes into it is your tractor big enough so it's just a matter of we just have to work through with them find out what their infrastructure is what size they can handle what their budget can handle and what the end game is where i sort of focus on so when you say end game what do you mean by their end game you've mentioned the goal i guess it varies depending on the farm but is it about products applied is it the amount they want to apply yep all of that um and Sort of the end game is where where do they want to end up in five to six years? What's the journey look like? Yep, you start at urea, and I'll say to people, you'll you'll start at urea because it's a cost. If you can save forty percent, that might equate to I don't know fifty grand, sixty grand. We've got farmers in Canterbury. I did a budget for the other day. Forty percent was two hundred thirty thousand dollars. Oh, we got one farmer over here that we spoke to the other day who's who's reducing his nitrogen urea input from uh, one hundred and sixty-seven or sixty-eight kilograms per hectare down to sixty-seven. So he's saving one hundred and one kilograms in urea per hectare. Yeah. It's a massive saving, as he said. To quote him, that's a massive saving. Were his words? Yeah, that's right. That's where everyone knows that cost, but moving down, by the time you start getting into MP and K and balancing up tanks and, and applying it to the grass and teaching people how to look at like herbage tests and, and what that relates to in units and balancing up grass, we've got farmers in New Zealand now that have, like on their second year of tow and fit, no, over two tonne of grass more per hectare. They've evolved from nitrogen because it was a direct cost. Um, and the farm I'm sort of thinking about when I talk about this, he started with a 1000, he's now gone to a 2800 because when he's evolved on from nitrogen, labour become his biggest issue, as most farmers in New Zealand at the moment. Um, so labour become his big, biggest issue, so he wanted to be able to do something. Um, so for instance, if you look at machine size, a 1000 will basically take you the same amount of time to load as a 2800. It sprays 2 metres to 3 metres smaller spray width. So when you look at a 2800, you're covering more hectares in the same amount of time. So if, all in all, the difference between a 1000 and a 2800 from a labour or a running cost point of view is probably 10 to 15 minutes, but you're doing three times the amount of area. Um, so being able to help people explain that to them, yeah, it might be double the price to buy, but labour's blimmin' expensive if you don't have it. All right, so moving on, um, one of the common ones that uh, that I get when I answer the phone is is what water rates uh, to apply. So can you give us an outline of how you see water rates? Yep, so water rates, a lot of people come from traditional boom sprayers. Everything's worked out in a water rate because they know if they put on 100 litres of water to the hectare, they've got a 1,000 litre tank, they get 10 hectares on a load. So it's a comparison. If you used say diluted urea in a boom sprayer your water rate needs to be really really high because if it's not you'll get tip burning because of dehydration of the plant because of droplet size 
Um, if you look at a boom sprayer, the biggest nozzle you can put in a boom sprayer, um, our smallest nozzle is 10 times bigger than that in a droplet size. And because we make the product in the tank, for instance, we use two litres of water to dilute one litre of urea. Yep, you can go stronger, but from efficiency point of view, coming back to timing, labour and costs, it's more efficient to mix it at two to one than it is to mix it at two to one and a half. You're talking 35 to 40 minutes difference in dilute time. Well, that's a tank emptied. So there's a real increase if you move away from that two to one ratio, there's an, a, quite an exponential increase in time taken to dissolve that urea. So that two to one ratio as a rule of thumb becomes really quite important. The difference between five minutes on your way out to farm, out to paddock I should say, or sitting back wake, waiting for it over smoko and, and then heading out. Well the difference in a 1000 from 380 kilos to 400 kilos is quite significant. So those savings, uh, is time savings for the farmer is very beneficial. But also you've got to remember that while the, while the urea is mixing, they're also putting in their other products, their fish, their seaweeds, their humates, all the goodies that's going while the machine is mixing. But then, you know, if they're, if they're not putting in those other products, uh, they get it all in the machine and as they travel out to the paddock, most of the urea is dissolved by the time they get to the paddock anyway. Yeah, so absolutely. beneficial for the farmer that way. Okay, cool. Well, you've touched on um, product compatibility there, Neil, but um, uh, we often do get asked as well, and we got this question uh, sent to us from a product compatibility point of view, and uh, this is one thing that actually surprised me in the early days when I first started with the toe and fit, thinking that you're uh, concocting up some brew that's going to go boom, and if you get the, uh, the, the, the ratios wrong or you get the products in the wrong order and all that sort of thing, you're going to end up with a blimmin' catastrophe of some description, when in fact that's not the case, but there are some basic rules of thumb about product compatibility with the machine and with each other. Yep, there is. Um, I've been doing this with Time Fit now since 2013, and I've only ever had one load come out of the tank all on its own. Um, and that's when in Canterbury about two years ago, just after the first lockdown, they had a shortage of sulfate of ammonia, so they went to horticulture sulfate of ammonia, which is more pure. Um, we put 600 kilos in a toe and 1200 and 25 kilos of loam flour and we emptied it in about 8 seconds. Um, and it all landed on a brand new tractor that had done 3 hours work. <laughs> um, very happy farmer. So that's the only time I've actually had a, a reaction to the point where it's gone berserk. In my own experience, you can combine lots and lots and lots of products and they won't go bang. I've never seen it bang. At the end of the day, you've got to think... In a 4,000, we're putting 3,000 litres of water most of the time. If you put 5 kilos or something in there, it cannot go bang. It's got too much water. It's, yeah, there's no oxygen and water <laughs> to, to cause the explosion. Um, but by combining lots and lots of products together, you can actually make products better. For instance, when we were down south, we used to grow fodder bean on our farm, did trials on lots and lots of farms. I actually did probably 600 kilos of fodder bean spraying. Um, all the reps down there said you cannot put fodder beet spray with, with fertilizer because it makes it inefficient. Well, we proved that wrong. We were using half rates of chemicals with fertilizer and growing sort of eight tons to the hectare more crop with no weeds in it. So it sort of, it defies their logic, but their logic at the end of the day is they're volume based and most salesmen get commission for what they sell. So what I say to most farmers to appease their mind about mixing chemicals, if they're not sure, do a bucket test. 
get the chemicals and put it into the into a bucket mix it with the two to one ratio as we say and just keep adding so if you do that if you do it in a bucket and most guys use it with a drill with a paint mix stirrer to get the same type of agitation as what you'll get in a toe and furt just keep adding your products if they don't go ugly whatever you want to call it there's another word that i use um but yeah if, if it doesn't do that you know it's going to work through the toe and furt so and also talk to your furt rep he should be able to tell you uh, help you out there so yep. there is one particular thing that we do need to touch on as far as product compatibility goes and that's the size of the particles that goes through the machine so can you touch on that just going back to the before we touch on that the two to one ratio and why we use that because that's another thing why why do you guys always use two to one ratio um, 85 percent of granular fertilizer products will dissolve dissolve at a two to one ratio so when you're doing a bucket test or doing something like that we say start at a two to one ratio if it dissolves pretty much by looking at it then you should be able to cut your water rate back. But at a two to one ratio, you're gonna get enough water on the plant so you don't get dehydration. That's the, the most important part. For instance, if you look at DAP, you can put DAP on at 200 kilos in a granular form. If you spray it at 80 kilos, you'll just about kill your paddock. Mm. You won't kill you'll it. You'll get it'll, tip burn. Yeah, it'll, it'll burn. Burning, tip burning, everyone goes tip burning's bad. Tip burning's not bad, it's dehydration. We've measured in crops that have had tip burning probably two inches down the leaf and still produce the same dry matter as the paddock beside it, which didn't get tip burning. And you're only talking 10 kilos of DAP to the hectare, so at, at a 17% nitrogen base, you're talking bugger all units. Um, and then potassium chloride's probably the biggest one that causes the most tip burning. Um, potassium, not potassium chloride on its own, but potassium. Um, if you put more than 40 kilos of potassium on and the wind happens to blow, it'll scorch it. But again, it bounces back. There's nothing bad about it. Basically, you've just topped the plant up. And because tip burning comes from liquid fertilizer, because you're spraying it on the plant, we've physically measured through herbage test, six hours after it's applied, we can do a sap test and measure the nutrients in the sap. So we can take a sap test prior to application. We can take a sap test four to six hours after, and the nutrients are in the sap. So that's how fast it gets into the plant. Exactly the same as Roundup. Roundup doesn't go through the soil structure. A lot of people are like, oh, but the fertilizer in liquid form still goes through the soil structure. Not all of it. A small portion of it, 5 to 10%, that comes down to, look at your paddock. If you can see 10% of dirt in your paddock, 10% of the fertilizer you apply is going to go through the soil structure still. Most of it, 90% if not more, will go through the leaf. Just the same as Roundup does. And that's the argument well not the argument one of the pushbacks you get quite a lot from people that are hesitant is that's not true it doesn't work like that and my answer to them is how does roundup work because if you understand how roundup works there's no excuse not to understand how liquid fertilizer works one of the things mike you've touched on there is that foliar application and how it does work and there are a couple of analogies we've come across over here in australia and i'll ask you to touch on one of those in particular uh the one in the case of pepper on steak can you just tell us that and how that kind of relates to foliar application of fertilizer yep um, so I like my Australian friends, but this one's actually from New Zealand. <laughs> so we're not going to give them that. Pepper on steak. So the analogy there is if you go out for dinner um, and you ask for pepper on your steak, they don't just give you one kernel, like pepper grain, whatever it is, and stick it in the middle of your steak and then you get it every mouthful. It doesn't work like that. This, the granule doesn't dissolve itself and spread everywhere all over the steak so that it's everywhere. You physically have to get the pepper, you have to grind it up and you have to spread it evenly over the steak so every mouthful is the same. So that's pretty much the difference between granular fur and liquid is application of the nutrients 
to the plant that you want to grow not application to every tenth plant and and then rely on a microbe system which is dependent on a massive range of things um, to make it efficiently take the nutrients to the plant um, yeah so going back on that as well that one part of the last question i just remember we didn't answer was actually about micron size of fine particle so when it comes to fine particle products we sort of got to be 200 or 100 microns or smaller um, to make it stay in suspension and it will hold them in suspension at large volume fine particle products for instance like lime flour um, it's a, a four to one ratio but it's backwards so you can put four kilos of lime flour into one lit one kilo of water whereas with urea you need two kilos of water for one kilo of product to dissolve it so one's an absorbent and one's an expander so we can say to people like our 4000 you can put four ton in it with with a couple of ton of water and they're like how does that work because that's 6,000 kilos, so how does that fit into 4,000 litres? Because the lime flour absorbs the water. Yeah. Um, so at that ratio, you could just imagine the lime flour is like wet concrete. Mm. So it's really thick, really slurry, um, but when you apply that to the grass, it's very easy to see the results. And if you go back, we've got video testimonials where people have put out products and you can see the application rate. Um, the gypsum company we went to, they actually did some drawing footage the other day flying over because it's bare dirt they're putting that onto before potatoes are planted. Um, and very clearly you can see how evenly it's applied compared to conventional ways which was happening on the paddock right next to where we were. Yeah. And so, one thing I would say to farmers as well, certainly don't go to the high volumes in the early days of owning a machine. Not until you totally understand the machine and you have blocked it a couple of times. And believe me, you will block it a couple of times by not having the right valve open or something like that. But at the start, go your lower rates. Uh, but certainly, you know, like with the machines, a 500 I've been able to put in 500 kilos of lime into 300 kilos of water, one ton into 500 kilos of water in a thousand, 1.2 in the in the 1200, three ton in the in the 2800, and four ton in the 4000. So you can really get some high volumes of fine particle in there. But, you know, the other analogy is you're better off little and often every time you go around than apart from one big dump, unless you really need to do a big pH change on the early days. But little and often, uh, the, we've got to follow the key rules, unfortunately, in this respect, is that every time they go out, they put lime flour out every time. Uh, yeah, but if you're going to do it little and often, uh, works much better than one big dump. One thing that we see, and we've seen this question a couple of times come up as well, Mike, is uh, around the pressure gauge when you're putting fine particle and you've suddenly got heavier stuff to push around, so you've got more of a slurry. And uh, the machine operates at a fairly tidy 20 psi when you've got water or urea in it. But once you start getting heavier product in there, the pressure does change. And we actually saw this out on farm on the, the handover the other day where the pressure changed and the farmer turned the pressure down and all of a sudden one, one nozzle wasn't working. And there was absolutely no reason to do that. But can you talk about how the pressure does alter uh, based on the products and based on how the machine operates? So, yeah, as Jolene said, when we're doing liquid products or most products with only a small amount of lime, say 20 to 40 kilos per hectare, we operate around that 20 to 24 psi. Consistently at that, that's what the machines are made for. You can keep put microbes in there and keep them alive. You go much higher than that, you're going to start killing volumes of them. You get to 30, 35 psi, you're killing all of them. Um, so all these people putting on biological products through a conventional boom sprayer will have a very, very fine line between killing most of them and killing all of them. Um, so that's how our dis 
machines are designed to run and the, coming back to the pressure variant so if you're going to be starting to run high volumes of fine particle products your pressure will go up it's like anything the the more water like it is the easier it is to push the thicker you make it the more it's going to take to push so so once it comes to setting up your machine to do that fill it with water set your nozzle set your pressure gauge get everything set up ready to go then put the products in and what the pressure gauge tells you is what the pressure gauge tells you um, you can't you can't slow it down. For instance, we run 32 litres of oil through our pump. So that, the impeller's doing 3,500 RPM. That's what the system's running on. That's what it's working on. All of a sudden, you get to 30 PSI when you're pushing fine particle products. And it's only because of line length and the volume of product you're having to push in a circuit is what's causing the pressure. It's not a blockage. Um, and by doing, yeah, by setting it up and then running it, it's, it's just doing it if you slow the hydraulic motor down for instance by i don't know 10 percent so you slow it down to 29 liters of oil per minute you've slowed the impeller down to like 2600 rpm so all of a sudden you're not pushing 12 a thousand to 1200 liters a minute of product through the system you now cut that back by 10 percent so you're sort of down to 900 to a thousand first thing that's going to happen is the particle products are going to fall out of suspension and you are going to get a blockage so by by keeping to the rule of thumb of 20 psi, that's a that's a liquid a liquid thing. And as you get into thicker and thicker brews, different products it will vary. So it just comes back to if you run the machine set up in a certain way, with just the say your in it, when it comes to the fine particle product, that's run the same way, but the pressure gauge will vary. So it's just understanding that relationship and how that works. Okay, so if we look at one of the uh, things that comes with the machines, except the exception of the 500, is the different nozzle sizes. Um, and there's two angles to this. Number one, uh, what do the nozzle sizes actually represent? And number two is around the accuracy and the work that we've done uh, in the last 12 months, I think it was ago almost now, that we started running the testing for the accuracy and the change of the design of the, uh, the nozzles. So firstly... Um, Neil, I'll get you to touch on this one actually. What what does the nozzle size represent? So if we start from the bottom and go right up to the top. Well, basically, we, we run nozzles from 15 litres a minute to 70 litres a minute. And those, those numbers are litres of liquid coming out of the nozzle at set at 20 PSI. So when you set your machine up, you've got two nozzles. Uh, so you've got 15 litres either side. That's 30 litres of product that's coming out per minute through there. So with your app, and we'll discuss the app later, you set the app up to the amount of liquid that you want applied based on the speed that you can travel. So that's how the, the nozzle sizes work. So the larger the nozzle, you're going to get a little bit more spray width with your larger nozzles. Of course you are with your smaller ones. Um, but it's also the amount of liquid that you apply for the speed that you can travel on your on your ground. And would you be using a wider, say a P60, P, uh, B, are they B60 or P60? P's and B's. So are we using a wider nozzle when we're using fine particle product? Or is it literally just about the flow? rate and the application well with the uh, with the product it's the heavier the brew the further the tone fur it's going to throw it so just a straight liquid let's say on a 2800 you could achieve uh, without fine particle 20 22 maybe 24 you should be getting it that way but definitely once you add a small amount of lime you will definitely get your 24 meter spray spray widths it's all basically comes back to specific gravity. So the, the app, which we've got a question about that, so we'll touch on that soon, but <clears throat> the, 
the specific gravity of the products and the application rate you put in is what it works it all out on. So that's what it basically it comes down to. The nozzle represents litres per minute. Times that by the specific gravity of the product, it knows what that's going to be in a width and away you go in application. So yeah, when we touch on that, we can go through all the different parts. Um, and what about the spread mark side of things then, Mike? Yep, so it would have been 18 months, two years ago now, we got approached by a couple of contractors in Canterbury that dairy factories were needing proof of placement for their environmental part of their audit. Um, so we got on Spreadmark, they sent us um, some protocol around basically how they test the trucks and said this is how we do it, you guys need to come up with a way that you can make that work. So the team back at the factory, the designers and that will put their brains together, um, redesigned a nozzle and we got it down to a coefficient variation of less than 15% which is what the trucks test to. Um, July last year we met with a person in Ashburton, we run the test um, come out at, I think it was 13 .5, 13 .4, 13 13.5, 13.4, 13.5% coefficient variation, so well under what it needed to be. Um, and now where we're at for that, we have resin printed and tested the other nozzles to the same design pattern. Um, we're really just waiting now for them to release the protocol because, yeah, we don't want to out make all the nozzles, spend all the money, make all the nozzles to find that the protocol they actually published aren't the protocol we first got given. So the protocol at the moment is currently being written by Spreadmark, is that, yeah, is that what you're the saying? the people that, okay. the quality people for them are, are writing it all and as far as I know it's getting peer reviewed and ready for releasing but that's all we know. Interesting. So now let's get back into the app operation then. <clears throat> the app is a important component of the machine once you if you're a newbie to the machine obviously and when you receive uh, your toe and foot you'll get a copy of the app uh, which will show you how to work through the various application rates using the various nozzles and to determine the speed with which you need to travel. So the app and the operation of it, um, can you touch on that a little bit in terms of application rates specifically? Yep, so it's, it's a very basic app, but at the end of the day, it's just a small computer, so rubbish in, rubbish out. You can't, it's, it's not a magician, it can't tell you what you're thinking and, and make it happen. A lot of people reckon they can put products in there, into the app, that'll just turn up in their machine even though they haven't brought it, and it's my fault. Um, so I've been down that road more than once and recently. Um, so basically, you just go through the app, you select, you model your machine, how many nozzles your machine has, then select your individual product. So for instance, your rear. If you put putting your rear on at 20 kilos to the hectare, that's what you put in the front page. So it's the product you want and the kilos rate per hectare. So you go through, you can add up to nine products in the app. Um, some products that you get into, say if you're putting on, oh, I don't know, cobalt at 300 grams to the hectare, don't bother. It can't calculate less than a kilo. And the, the finer you go in products, um, and the smaller amount you put in have absolutely no different because all this app's really doing is working out the specific gravity to tell you what nozzle to use to achieve the speed you want to drive at. So it's just a calculation. So you put your products in there, then work out your load. So you can either put in the total hectares of your farm for the job you're going to do, which will then divide it out into even loads, or you can actually go in there and and play around with it, which we teach you how to do it, so that you can get the most amount of hectares you can in one load, and away you go. Because at the end of the day, if you don't run fine particle in the town fur, and you're only running liquid fertilizers, you can fill it up, do five hectares, pack it in the shed for a week, do some more. You don't have to just fill up for what you're going to do today. If you put fine particle in there, definitely clean it. Then after you've done your hectares, then you select your nozzle size, and the nozzle size is 100% related to your speed. 
So as you go up a bigger nozzle size, you have to increase your speed. Mm -hmm. So you can mix your toe and fur. So when you put all your products in there and your hectares in there, you're not stuck to only use that one nozzle size for the whole job. So for instance, we've got people on hill country, they'll make up the load, they might run a 40 nozzle and travel 14k on the flat, but when they get to the hills and they can only achieve 6 or 7k, they just back down to a different nozzle size, put the nozzle in and you can go climb the hills. Um, so it's real easy from that point of view. So then once you've got all that in there and you've selected your speed and your nozzle, you go to the next page which is your mixer, it will tell you everything about the information you've, you have put in, not me, you. <laughs> so it's tell you the tank size, how many litres of water, what nozzle to run, how wide that's going to be. And our width now does have an overrun so that if, if you, the app's telling you you're doing 23 kilos when you mix it up, you might actually mix it up and it might be doing 22 kilos, it might be doing 24, it might do 23 and a half. You can change the width now to override that and it will back calculate that for your nozzle and your speed and, and all that sort of stuff. And the reason we've done that is because now these Tomferts are all over New Zealand, all over Australia, they're in Ireland, they're in South Africa, they're all over the world. Every product that we put in, we can't guarantee that when you mix one kilo of that product with two litres of water, the specific gravity in New Zealand is going to be the same as Australia, the same as Ireland, the same as South Africa. So we've put that in there so that there is the adjustment that you can manually do yourself. So yeah, that's, that's a good part that we've added. So then once you've gone through, it tells you that, it tells you the water rate per hectare, it tells you what the mixed application rate is, tells you how much water, it tells you how much of each individual product to put in to reach what you put in on the front page. So it's pretty easy, pretty straightforward, but it comes back to, it's all related to the machine operating at 20 PSI. Mm -hmm. So for instance, at 20 PSI, a 40 nozzle will put out 40 litres to the hectare. At 30 PSI, a 40 nozzle will put out 50% more. So it's actually going to put out 60 litres of water. So that's what catches a lot of people out. They'll ring me up and they'll go, oh, I should have done 25 hectares in this load, but I only did 15. Oh, what was your pressure gauge doing? Oh, it's at like 35 PSI. It's like, why wasn't it at 20? Huh, I thought it would just know what the app wanted. They're not linked. The app does not talk to the time vert machine. So the information you put in is the same information you have to put into the tractor when you operate it. We're also able to, uh, you're, you're able to add your own products. So if you don't, a chemical is not in there, you can add it yourself. But what we need to know is the specific gravity of the product. So if you're not sure, find out your specific gravity, give us a call and we'll add it to the app for you. Um, but you are, can add apps in there. But currently there's about 80 different products in there. So there are a lot of products in there. And most liquids, if it's not in there, just use the generic um, there's one called generic liquid uh, fertilizer just use that and that will cover majority of the liquid fertilizers that are out there but you've got your molasses your fishes and and all your basic products that most farmers use okay so moving on um, one of the tricky questions that we do get asked is is okay what sort of response rates can be expected and how soon can I see changes on my farm and it's tricky I say because each farm is different each farm has different products in the ground, different grasses, different legumes, whatever they may be. They have different soil types. There's so many variabilities involved in that. So I'm just going to complete this answer with that. Um, to throw back to you guys what response rates can be expected and how soon can a user of a toe and fert start to see changes on farm. And also when to apply it. After the cows have left, um, when do you, when's the best time to go in and apply? And Michael, being an ex-dairy farmer, is the best person to answer this job, this question. 
Yep, so the best time to apply, um, you want around 1650 to 1750 cover. Um, people do wait longer, people do wait shorter. So it comes back to time of the year, how busy are you, how much time have you got, are you wanting to go away, are you, there's heaps of things. So rule of thumb is apply it after the cows. Um, I've applied it personally myself at 1550 cover right up. Comes back to what I was talking about before. The more dirt you can see, the more that's got to go through the soil structure, so the slower the uptake process is. So that's the thing. So if you're looking at 1700 cover, um, you're going to get probably a 90% uptake in the first four to six hours. So it's going to be very, very fast. So that's the uptake rate, Mike, but what about the response rate in terms of growth? So, I mean, ultimately it all comes back to that. Yep, so testing that I did myself on my own place down south, remember this is Southland, um, we were doing 100 kilos a year and we are getting 11 to 1 response, um, and from the liquid fertiliser we were doing 55 kilos a year and we got a 16 to 1 response. So from an uh, efficiency point of view, because it's in the plant faster, so you're in the plant in 4 to 6 hours compared to perfect weather conditions 7 to 10 days, um, and once it goes in through the leaf, the plant takes it in. The plant has all of the nutrient you apply to it. It takes it in. It's, it can't pick and choose. If it wants to absorb some, it absorbs all because it's just a droplet. It can't pick and choose, close its mouth halfway through. Um, whereas in the granular system, the plant's always searching for nutrients as it requires it. So the uptake of the plant can vary quite a bit between when it's got all the nutrient you applied or whether it's got some or bit. So at a 10 to 1 response over a, I don't know, we'll say 25 day rotation, compared to a 16 to 1 response over a 21 day rotation, the actual grass you grow is more because it's working from 4 to 6 hours after you apply it. So a lot of the, a lot of the response comes from the immediate growth in the first 7 to 10 days where you get very minimal in the nutrient cycle of the granule breakdown. Um, so it's just a lot of it comes in those first days. So do we see as a result of that, if we've got a, a, a slow uptake in the granular form and a quick uptake in the foliar form, are we seeing that quick uptake curve, if you like, uh, in the graph on foliar and then 10 days later we're seeing the uptake of the granular product. Uh, are they levelling out and matching each other or are we seeing an increased growth over time through one or other? No. So from my own experience of measuring, and I did some measuring, it was in one of our testimonials, we did a nitrogen response um, length test, if you want to call it that, days that we could find through a herbage test nitrogen in the plant. Um, so we tested over, basically we did one application, we got a 16 to 1 response from the liquid nitrogen, we got a 10 to 1 response from the granular nitrogen, and then we measured through a herbage test nitrogen in the plant as a percentage for 100 days. So if you jump to the end of the test, on day 100 there was 300% more nitrogen in the plant still through liquid application than there was through granular application. Um, they were the same paddock, one was the left hand side, one was the right hand side, and the, the right hand side to be fair had the water trough in it and it had the gate in it so it actually had more fertility in it. And the liquid side wasn't, it was the back part of the paddock where there's less fertility and all those sort of things because the reason we did that is because every time we run a test, that's what people chucked at us. Oh, the liquid stuff had the good side of the paddock. Um, so, yeah, so from a response point of view, it doesn't matter whether it's NPKS, doesn't matter what the nutrient is, everything we've measured in liquid form, faster uptake, better response. Most of the response, because you've got to remember the response through the granular, yeah, it was a 10 to 1 response from growing grass. 
But the reverse side of that is it's the same product. It's the same nutrients. It's the same. It's still in. In still in, no matter whether it's a liquid or a solid. It's still a unit of in. So where did those other units go? We lost them. And a lot of people go, oh, how can you prove that? Overseer tells us that. Overseer tells us that 45% of what we put on is lost in it for, for in at certain times of the year. So if you put in on granular urea at 100 kilos to the hectare and we spray 55, oh, look at that, it's 45% less. We, and there's lots of people around the world, not a lot in New Zealand because it's hard to get it scientifically done in New Zealand, but... There's people in the UK, like Joel Williams did sort of presentation the other day, they've scientifically proven that in a liquid fertiliser, 5%'s lost. Yeah, 5%. I remember Grant Richards touching on that as well, and, uh, and he was very clear dots. that he could prove that. Yep. In the Join and Dodds podcast, previous podcast. Good to know you've listened to it, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all good stuff. Okay, so... It's hard to sort of determine, obviously, what those particular response rates are on any given farm, and that's over to individuals with your testing, as you've mentioned. And I think that's one of the big things that you look at as we go around and visit clients and things is is the guys that really test, and we're talking herbage tests and a very simple soil test, um, are the guys that are really sort of pushing things ahead yeah. from both an environmental point of view, a water retention in the soil point of view, a soil health point of view, but also in a growth point of view from the products or I should say the the grasses and the legumes and everything that they're growing um so the changes on the farm how soon can we expect to see the response fast mm. two weeks two weeks yeah yep. i can i've been to farms like when i do demos um it's very it's some people when you go and do a demo they just want to see the machine and, and they want to see the urea dissolve and then spraying it's just got to get it out of there so I can go to the next job sort of thing. Whereas some places you go to and they're a bit iffy and they're like, oh, what's the same question? What's my response rate going to be? How can you prove to me that I can use that much less than grow the same amount of grass? Easy. Go to the paddock right outside his house, spray half of it, start in at his house and driving away because then there's a straight line in the paddock and you can't ignore it. Every day he gets up and opens the curtain and he has to look at it. Um, so it's very easy to do that sort of trial to it's yeah very easy to do it do half paddock trials miss a strip cut a corner all those sorts of things um do granular i've even had one farmer that um i did a trial for about a month ago he rang up just before i come to australia and ordered his machine and i did the same thing i went to his place and i did started at his house and did half a paddock trial um sprayed your ear on half his paddock but i did every single paddock on the roadside so that every time he drove down there he's seen the lines he rang me up and said i went out and put granules on at twice as heavy as i normally do and i can't get rid of the line so the whole process of his thinking was let's just put double the amount on to get rid of the line it'll catch up because of the seven to ten day lag it hasn't caught up so meanwhile the, the liquid side's growing even more so the line's becoming more prominent so it's an easy way to prove to yourself how much can I cut back. And and coming back to some stuff that was in Grant's podcast last time too as well, it's all about when you go liquid system, I look at it as do you want to spend money today to grow grass that's going to make you money tomorrow or do you want to spend money today that's going to grow someone in 30 years' time money? Soil test is a very good test. It's a very good important test. It's a good thing to monitor because if, if fertiliser goes off the Richter scale, which it looks like it's going to, potentially people aren't going to be able to use it. So what's in the soil is what they've got. 
So it's about unlocking that and making sure we're using what's already there, but we're applying stuff that the plant needs now. Uh, and that's where it comes back to that little and often. In the growth cycle of the plant, it actually needs, just as we do in terms of food, uh, it needs certain foods at certain times of the year to maximise the growth. Okay, so the next question then, just to touch on that side of it, is what end products can I use at different times of the year? And I know we talk about, particularly uh, in New Zealand, but we're in Victoria here as well, where it does get pretty chilly, but we, we go down to Tasmania, where it's even chillier. Uh, we've got Southland uh, at the bottom of the South Island in New Zealand, right up to Northland, um, where it remains pretty tropical most of the year. What are the end products that we can use and should be using as a general rule again um, at different times of the year? What would you say to that? Yep, so any of your end products that you're basically using, um, like your ammos, sulfate ammonias, your rears, um, your end protects and all that sort of um, sustain, they're, they're the common end products that everyone puts on in bulk. Um, so when you look at things like sustain and in protect for instance those coatings are there to slow down the breakdown and the process of it to, so it can do what it's going to do and the plant gets a chance to use it all pretty simply um, without getting too in depth about that but when we put those products into a tow and fit we're taking the coatings off them in the tank so they're not a they're not an important product and balance actually published a paper when they were trying to prove sustain um, that proved that liquid nitrogen straight on its own was outperforming sustain doesn't matter how much coating they put on it at what rate doesn't matter um so that's a, a balanced paper that i can give to anyone that wants it yeah we do have that available yeah yep. being an aussie here guys i haven't heard of sustain so is this a product from ravens down or balance for balance and what that is a a, a urea with a coating on the outside yep. of it basically yeah so designed to slow release into the soil basically okay. once so i'm sure we've got similar products yep you have Australia. got similar products yeah Yep. yep, so you don't have to go down the road of the coated products, um, but as you get into the liquid application, you can start getting into things like UAN and stuff that are different forms in, um, and especially if you're pushing the 190 cap and you need to grow grass on the fringes when it's colder. Um, in Taranaki, um, last winter, we did a trial, soil temperature was 8 degrees, 100 kilos of urea grew 28 kilos a day, um, 20 litres of UAN grew 65. 20 20 kilos of UAN is 7 units of N compared to 46 units of N. Wow. So when you look at back at it as a nutrient budget, it's um, it's a big whack of your nutrient budget that you haven't wasted. Mm. Um, so being able to use things like UAN in the colder months, um, sulfate of ammonias around the fringes. So quite often a common, a common thing is UAN in the colder months and then you'll do a UAN sulfate of ammonia or a UAN ammo mix after that. And then as it warms up and gets sort of 12 degrees or over, people are still using UAN, people are just using sulfate of ammonia, or people go to urea. So you've got options there to move on. But the good thing with UAN is you can use UAN with urea any time of the year to, to push different forms of N into the plant in, in a different way and still maintain blooming good grass growth, but look after your nutrient budget and your nitrogen cap. So it's, yeah, there's lots of products you can use at lots of times of the year and it depends on your climate and where you are and what happens and there's a lot to it, but it's it's certainly lots of products you can use. So I wouldn't we wouldn't use UAN during the summer just due to the cost of the product? Uh, no, UAN's cheap compared to urea. Okay. Yep. So if you look at urea at 100 kilos, 
in Victoria it's nineteen hundred bucks. It's one hundred ninety bucks a hectare, and UAN will cost you forty four. Right. Yep. So UAN can also be used in the dry. So you can use it in the lower, and you can use it in the upper. And because of the ammonium form of nitrogen, it requires less water from a plant point of view for hydration to work. So in Southland this year they've had quite a big drought and I know a lot of farmers down there, as soon as they started getting juice they started tricking UAN, it was only 10 kilos to the hectare, 10 litres to the hectare sorry, but they're putting it on with 400 litres of water so it was getting into the plant and at the time um, they were thinking oh, why has he suggested this, why has he suggested this, but as soon as it rained it was off because we had lifted the end plant because at the end of the day there's balances in the plant. Your nitrogen needs to be between 3.5 and 4%. Um, you need to have a K level at a certain percentage in a P. So everything's in balance. So that when it rains, it grows. But if you're not putting it on, it's not in balance. So if it's if there's no rain around, it's not taken out of the soil because it's there's nothing for it to take. So it's all about keeping it in balance. Um, we talk about N and everyone talks about N because it's got such a big price tag. But the other nutrients are just as important. There aren't many products that will go or won't go through a toe and food, I should say, but there is one that we are often having to tell people, and that is superphosphate. Superphosphate will not go through the toe and food. So one of the questions becomes, okay, what do I replace it with? Can you just address that? Yep, so most, most toe and food people are using DAP, MAP or DCP. Those are the three main products they use because superphosphate, although it says on the website that it's water-soluble, it's not. I've put um, a ton of that into a tomifert and left it mixing every day for two days, so basically 24 hours of mixing, and then we've drained the tank onto concrete. The next day we've picked it up with a tractor that had load cells on the bucket and weighed it, and there was still 972 kilos there. So 30 kilos dissolved in 24 hours of stirring. So why can we not then put superphosphate in as a fine particle? Yes, you can. Mm-hmm. But the grinding cost outweighs the benefits. Okay. Yeah, and then if you look at 1993 MPI in New Zealand down in Dunedin did a study on superphosphate, and it said doesn't matter what form you apply it in, how fine, how great, doesn't matter. It's only even nine percent active in its life cycle. Hence, why to get 40 units out of it, we have to put on about 500 kilos. 40 units is what they say goes off a dairy farm every year. No, it's not. About 17 to 18 units go out the gate. The rest is leached. Mm-hmm because of the process of the long breakdown. So for years and years and years, superphosphate's been a big seller in New Zealand, but a lot of people don't know it's only even 9% active. So does that mean that those other products that you've just mentioned are more active? Um, basically, by diluting them, they go to a liquid. So by diluting them, putting them on, they're in the leaf, they're in the plant, does go into the soil structure. I was always believed, well, led to believe by certain people that Plants don't excrete the nutrients back down through the roots, but after talking to Grant and another guy over in Australia here, apparently they put it down and it's not in a liquid, not nutrient form, but there is a bypass product pro, product that comes out their root system. And because it's come as an organic product out of the root structure, it will hold on to soil. So that answers another question I commonly get asked is can you build soil nutrients through doing it and these two people i've talked to which are highly regarded people and the fella over here so i'd hate to think how many farms he looks after hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres um he they said to me nah that's how it goes backwards in the soil and they have seen it in vegetables which use liquids 100 um 
that they are building soil nutrients through liquid. And I think that would be our experience anecdotally uh, as well. And uh, recently, having seen a uh, video conference with Joel Williams, who um, you mentioned earlier, uh, he certainly pointed to the fact that the excretion if you like for want of a better word from a plant applied with foliar application in uh, to the soil through um, uh, through the roots does occur and is a positive and healthy thing for the soil and as I say anecdotally we see that on the farms uh, that we visit where their soil structure uh, is improving uh, as a result of the change from the solid application to the liquid application so we're closing out now we're coming to the end of our questions Hopefully we've addressed and got most of those that uh, people have submitted to us and we've covered everything everything off. But I guess the last one that people want to know is where is this product going? And we're talking about the toe and furt. And uh, we could rattle off a bunch of things uh, that we want it to go, but that would only uh, serve to annoy our design team back in the factory, <laughs> I would suggest. Um, but, you know, let's look at the next 18 months to two years, guys, and um, realistically, where the product is going if i if i am to throw something out there big picture we'd love to see automated uh, uh, toe and furts running around the farm applying your your product for you automatically so you can sit back and enjoy a coffee or a tea and just watch the machine travel out to your paddocks but i have to say that is some way off we haven't stopped or we have stopped to think about it uh, but we've got uh, i guess you'd say more active fish to uh, to search for at the moment so where are we heading with that okay from a uh electronics point of view um, get asked a lot and the more and more with this nutrient capping coming in and looking into bigger industries we're getting asked about rate control um, it is a challenge only running two nozzles to get rate control as speed ground speed changes so the design team is working pretty hard on this at the moment to to try and nail it um, so that's that's the, the sort of big picture sort of thing so in the intermediate to fill that void what they're looking at doing is um, designing a rate controller which basically is the app but then from the app it's actually telling you as you're traveling it's giving you feedback to telling you are you achieving what you put into the app so it's really just monitoring load cells so for instance it'll you'll fill the machine up and I'll just use some figures here to make it easier in my brain but say you fill the 4,000 up you got five ton and you're going out to put that on 25 hectares well that's 200 kilos to the hectare so you tell this little device that well it'll transfer information from the app so it'll transfer the spray width and and all that so you'll say righto that's the weight and the scales which it'll know you just confirm it by pushing a button it'll you have to confirm the spray width and you have to confirm your target speed and once you've got that the machine will then monitor what speed you're actually doing and how that relates to what the product's going out on the ground as an average per hectare. Um, so that's what we're looking at developing now, which is a, a very good thing because it really you don't have to have the most skilled person in the world to go and run it because the computer tells them to go faster or slower. So that's sort of where we're at there. And then rolling on from there, it'll be hopefully it's just a module plug-in with a couple of different nozzles that are who knows electronically controlled who knows what that's going to look like but once i've developed that nozzle then that'll plug in and then from there we should be able to make that rate control whereas instead of telling the driver what to do it's actually telling the nozzle what to do but it's still monitored and, and driven from the driver um, so that's that's on an electronics point of view where i think we're heading um, and then from there we get into broad acres starting to become a big thing so i think they've started the process of potentially looking at 36 meters 
but that ties back to being able to have a rate controlled nozzle because otherwise a 36 meter boom turning a corner the inside nozzle is totally different to the outside nozzle in a straight line it's all good it's easy just run what we got but when it comes to turning corners it gets affected so we get to 36 meter and with that we'll probably come a bigger tank eventually um, that's probably hopeful for an 18 month project but it's sort of hopefully something that we're working towards so on a smaller scale though on a machine basis there are improvements that constantly happen and we talk about in the office this sort of uh, continuous improvement process through the machines and there's been a number of those over the years what are they currently working on as far as continuous improvement of the product goes are you, are you aware of anything that's sort of in the pipeline at the moment prior to those ones you've just mentioned um yep so just before christmas they gave everything a birthday if you want to call it that where with the COVID thing, every business, every single person's hit hurdles with suppliers and demand and stuff like that. So they, they've done some things to make it simpler from a manufacturing point of view to cut out external suppliers and do more in-house making stuff. And to do that, there's been a few little, they're not design changes, the models, they still all look the same. It's just a couple of different taps or they were using stainless steel instead of plastic and and little things like that, that so they're manufacturing things and the only other thing we're looking at is a couple other supplies for other products we get like hydraulic motors and actuators and just to secure ourselves so if this COVID thing doesn't disappear we're not hamstrung by delays um, but other than that everything's it's either a health and safety thing or a usability that drives change most of it from a tow and fit owner's operation hasn't really changed it's more a health and safety or a or a assembly thing in that process to to speed it up and by doing that um that's what's helping us maintain a kind of constant price like if you look over the last few years the price hasn't changed bugger all compared to a car or a tractor or a house or your petrol or your food <laughs> um, if you put it into a percentage it'd be in single digits well and truly that how the price has changed over the last two or three years by being smarter in the factory that's what's driven that by being smarter with suppliers that's what's driven that and having smart designers to make new pieces new toys new gadgets for us and controlling the cost of that and I think you're right, that's where it's, it's been quite impressive is the moment we get wind that a supply might be sort of uh, peaking out in terms of time to delivery, the guys hit it pretty hard pretty quickly to find alternative options to get us through that, uh, that, that problem. Now that doesn't obviously mean it's foolproof, but we certainly see a lot of effort going in there to maintain the supply of the machines uh, uh, through the factory as we've hit these sort of um, strange and weird times. But let's uh, let's hope those are all coming to an end now and I guess we settle into a new normal, whatever that might look like. Well, look, that wraps up our questions uh, for this particular podcast. It's uh, hopefully... Uh, imparted some good information to those of you who uh, wanted it uh, and needed it perhaps um, anything you guys would like to add to sort of finish things off from a user point of view it's probably the easiest piece of farm machinery you can use um, that's commonly said yeah. isn't it with yeah. once people get the machine they say how easy it is it's only got four valves on it depending on the machine so there's not a lot we try and keep minimal electronics away from the wet areas so yeah, it is a very user, uh, easy, user-easy-friendly machine to use. 
Um, that's, a special, only... that's a special Australian term yeah. there. Use it easy friendly. <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing was cleaning. Uh, a lot of people ask me about cleaning the machine. As Michael said earlier, if you're gonna if you're gonna go out and, and, and with the machine, you're better off filling it. And if you only use half, you can go and park it in the shed. Um, if it's fine particle, you got you got to empty out the whole the whole machine. And what we do suggest is to give it a good rinse. Put three four hundred liters of water in the machine and give it a rinse out. Drain it all out through your pump and through your dump valve. Um, but if it's just standard uh, liquid, just leave it in there. But yeah, if you're going to be using the machine next week, you can fill it up and then just park it up for the week and then pull it out of the shed and use it again next week. But yeah, for sure, once you put fine particle, give it a good wash. She does need it because the, the fine particle will form clumps, uh, will get caught up through your filter. Give her a good clean after fine particle. The other, the other liquids, just leave it. Good as gold. All right. Well, look, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Australia, for the week that we've had here. And we're going to be heading home shortly. Thank you for listening, everybody. We do hope you've found it useful, as I mentioned. If there's ever anything else you need to know or any questions you have, don't hesitate to flick us an email. Uh, give Mike or Neil a call in your respective countries, and we will be sure to get back to you with some answers. Thank you again. Have a great week, and we hope you enjoyed the listen.